0: My name is Dave, I'm one of the pastors here, and if we haven't met yet, I would love the opportunity to meet with you after the service, perhaps in the foyer after, Um, and if you're joining us online this morning, just want to say thank you for doing that as well. Uh, If you didn't know that today we are in the second week of a four-part series in the book of Ruth, and uh, last week I mentioned that we are studying the book of Ruth for what I think are two very important reasons. First of all, the book of Ruth, uh, it answers the question, is God good for women? Which has been an important question for people throughout history because women, as I said last week, have often been marginalized and looked down upon in society and even in the church. The second reason is that the book of Ruth prepares us for suffering, the kind of deep suffering that comes with things like health problems, traumatic events, and even sudden death. And in chapter 1, we saw how Naomi and Ruth, they experienced, they suffered all three of these difficulties. The family had to move to Moab from Bethlehem because of a famine. Ruth suffers uh, from infertility, and Naomi's husbands and two sons die, one of whom is Ruth's husband as well. We read in chapter 1 how Naomi holds God responsible for all of her suffering. She sees his invisible hand behind all of life's events. And I said last week that God is sovereign in our suffering. But Naomi doesn't just believe he is in control. She feels like God is against her. And it causes her to become bitter. And it's hard to blame Naomi for feeling like that. Her life does seem so unfair. And if God is ultimately in control of all that happens, then it is no surprise that she feels like she does. But what is surprising is Ruth. Ruth, who is suffering as well, but rather than accuse God of being unfair or unkind or take the easy out and go home back to Moab, Instead, commits herself to both Yahweh and Naomi, following them down the more difficult road to Bethlehem. Naomi is very fortunate to have Ruth. But her fortune doesn't come by sheer fate or chance. You see, God is sovereign in our suffering, just as Naomi believes. But in today's account, Naomi, and hopefully we too, will discover that God is also sovereign In our good fortune. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to Ruth chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at it just like we did last week, just a section at a time. The text will hopefully be up on the screen as well, but it's always good to have our Bibles in front of us. Chapter 2 begins Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So Boaz comes into the story in a few verses later, but the author introduces him here to add suspense to this story. We thought that Naomi and Ruth were all alone when they arrived back in Bethlehem. We believe that Elimelech's legacy had been obliterated when he, along with his sons, died in Moab. But surprise, surprise... Naomi has a relative who just so happens to be from the same clan as her husband, Elimelech. Who could have ever saw that coming? And to add more intrigue to this juicy little piece of foreshadowing, the verse says that Boaz is a man of standing. Now this phrase, him being a man of standing, means that not only is he a wealthy and influential person in the community, but this also alludes to his character. And we've already seen how one person with impeccable character has turned this story on its head when Ruth shows Naomi chesed, incredible loyalty, sacrificing her own well-being to come with Naomi to Bethlehem. Now the audience is left wondering, how might Boaz, this man of standing, also change the fortunes of these two widows? Chapter 1 ended by saying that Naomi and Ruth had returned to Moab, returned from Moab, arriving in Bethlehem just as the barley harvest was beginning. This week, we see how their timing was fortunate because, as Ruth 2 verse 2 says, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. What Ruth is planning to do is take advantage of gleaning laws, which God put into place so that the poor would not have to starve to death, but could feed themselves and also have the dignity of work. Gleaning is when others go over a field or an orchard after the harvesters have already worked it, and they have gathered, and then they The poor go and they gather and pick up everything that might have been dropped or left behind or overlooked. In Deuteronomy 24, God says, When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees... Do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. See, gleaning, it was the Old Testament social security program, which recognized that God is the ultimate owner over the land and that his care and provision It extends to the most marginalized. And Ruth and Naomi, they live on the margins. They are poor widows without any benefactors and there is no career or trade to fall back on. They live on the brink of starvation. So luckily, they have arrived when they do. Just in time for the barley harvest. Verse 3 continues. So she, Ruth, went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. What are the chances of that? Of all the fields in Bethlehem, Ruth just so happens to stumble upon Boaz's field. The very same Boaz that verse 1 says, remember, is a relative of Naomi's and is a man of standing. Now, I know that this may be driving some of you nuts that I keep saying that Ruth and Naomi are lucky or fortunate or something just so happens to happen to them, right? You want to say to me, come on, Dave, none of this is luck or chance, it's all God. Exactly. God is behind it all. We learned Last week, all about his providence, how providence is the understanding of how God rules the universe. He didn't just create the world and then step back and let it run on its own or leave it to chance or to human actions. Rather, God continues to govern it all. He is moving things so that everything turns out according to his will. God takes everything in life, natural disasters, human choices, even things that seem like accidents, and he is using them to accomplish his good purposes. And last week we saw how God's providence says that he is sovereign even over our suffering. It also means, though, that God is sovereign in our good fortune as well. Every good thing that happens to us in our lives, whether we think we earned it or it happened to us by chance, the Bible says that these things ultimately come to us from the hand of God. Here in verse 3, when Ruth goes out to glean and ends up in Boaz's field, the NIV says, as it turned out. However, the original language says, and her chance chanced literally Ruth's luck got lucky it's a it's hyperbolic irony by excessively attributing Ruth's good fortune to chance the phrase points ironically to the opposite it's pointing to God's sovereignty Ruth wasn't lucky to end up in Boaz's field Yahweh carefully guided her footsteps to the right place. And each time a coincidence or a happy accident happens in this story, it's not fate smiling down upon them. It's Ruth's heavenly father who is displaying his sovereignty, his providence, and his loyal love for her. So it should come to us as no surprise that Boaz just happens to show up to inspect his field that same morning that Ruth happens to be gleaning in it. Verse 4. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. And the Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of the harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field, and she has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Now, in this section, we begin to see the character of Boaz that the author alluded to earlier. When he arrives on the scene, he greets his employees with a blessing. He says, the Lord be with you, and they respond in kind, and they say, the Lord bless you. Now, we might be tempted to see this as some kind of religious formality, However, it is unlikely that this was a regular greeting back then, just as it would be unusual for us to greet one another like that today, even in church, right? I highly doubt that when we had our little greeting time this morning and we returned to welcome our neighbors, that some of you were like, hey, the Lord bless you, right? Right? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you all do that. I'm the only one who doesn't, right? No, we say, good morning, how's it going? How are you, right? Yeah, but the author includes this exchange between Boaz and his workers to show that Boaz is a man who takes Yahweh seriously and to remind the reader that even though God hasn't shown up in person, he is still present. Commentator Robert Hubbard, he says, though offstage, Yahweh is still within earshot. Boaz then asks the harvesters I mean, the, the foreman of the harvesters about Ruth. He says, "Who does that young woman belong to? Who does she belong to?" Now Boaz is not being chauvinistic when he asks who she belongs to, nor is he scoping Ruth out as a potential wife when he asks who she is. He would not have even considered that because socially Ruth is in a lower class than Boaz. Um, She's lower than even one of his servants. When he says, who does she belong to, this is either a question about who she works for or about which family or clan she belongs to. And it probably has to do with the family or clan because the foreman replies about her being the Moabite who returned with Naomi from Moab. In fact, four times in this chapter, we are told that Ruth is from Moab. And this is significant. It reminds us of something that could be easy for us to forget, that she is a foreigner. She is from a country that is historically Israel's enemy. And racial tensions, they ran high in Israel. So Ruth, as an ethnic outsider... She faced hostility from those around her in addition to her poverty, the grief from losing her husband, and also the vulnerability that came with being a woman in a patriarchal society. And that's what makes Ruth's actions here so incredibly courageous. The foreman quotes her in verse 7 saying, she said, please, Let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and she's remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. What we miss in translation is likely Ruth has not been working in the field all morning. Rather, she came to the field, made her request to the foreman, and has been standing in the field waiting for the answer. However, the foreman does not have the authority to grant Ruth what she's asking for. Only the owner, Boaz, has that authority. Now, her request may not seem to be such a very bold thing to ask from our point of view. According to God's law in Deuteronomy 24, landowners were obliged to allow the poor, like Ruth, to glean. However, this doesn't mean it always happened. Unfortunately, greedy owners and harvesters who worked for them probably often obstructed the efforts of gleaners by harassing them, tricking them, or simply just kicking them off the land. But Ruth is not just asking for permission to glean as the law allows. Rather, she is stretching the rules beyond their limits. You see, when harvesting in a field, the hired men who were the harvesters, they would go along and with one hand, they would grasp the standing grain stalks, and then with the other hand, they had a sickle, they would cut them off at the base, and then they would lay the, the grain down on the ground in a pile, and then female workers who would follow, gathering and binding the cut sheaves of grain into bundles. Now, the poor would be permitted into the fields to glean only after the harvesters and the female workers had finished their work and removed the bundled sheaves of grain. And then they could go in and they could glean. But Ruth doesn't want to pick up leftover scraps. She proposed to glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters not after the female workers. To work among the harvesters, where there was plenty of newly cut grain laying, waiting to be gathered into bundles. Ruth's request doesn't follow the practice of gleaning. It subverts it. Carolyn Custis James writes, Ruth takes Boaz to a higher level of obedience by her actions, she is not merely going the distance to fight for Naomi's needs. She is also pressing Boaz to color outside the lines of his understanding of God's law. The letter of the law says, let them glean. The spirit of the law says, feed them. Two entirely different concepts. Ruth's bold proposal exposes the difference. We don't know whether Ruth came by her boldness naturally. You know, was she this? fearless, daring kind of woman. But the Bible does say what motivated her to take her courageous action. It was her devotion and commitment to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Remember how on the road to Bethlehem, when Ruth committed herself to both Naomi and Yahweh and showed uncommon chesed. Chesed is that Hebrew word we talked about last week, which signifies kindness, loyalty, reliability, and compassion. Along with God's providence, chesed is the main theme of the book of Ruth. It is active, selfless, sacrificial love that motivates a person to pour themselves out for the good of another. And here we see how Ruth's chesed for Naomi propels her to take another great risk, and in turn it motivates Boaz to show Hesed too. In verse 8, it says, So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow alongside the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you even notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. Had you left your father and mother and the, your homeland and you came to live with a people you did not know before? May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. See, Boaz not only grants Ruth's request to glean where she wouldn't normally be permitted, but he goes beyond. He guarantees her safety. He gives her permission to drink from the water cooler that would have normally been off limits to gleaners. When Ruth asks why he would do all of this for her, his answer is because he has heard of the chesed that she showed Naomi. Boaz is not motivated to help Ruth out of infatuation or romantic interest. Rather, he is inspired by Ruth's faith in action. Essentially, what he says to her is, I'm showing you kindness because I'm just following your example. Boaz is driven to go beyond what Ruth asks or what anyone would expect of a man in his position. That's chesed. When he says, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. And then he says, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. This line here, this would have set off alarm bells for the original audience of ancient Israelites. Right? This line here, it's a hyperlink to another story where somebody else left their parents, and their homeland to go to a land that they previously did not know before. Does it ring any bells for you? That's Abraham, only the father and patriarch of the entire nation of Israel. And just as Abraham demonstrated valiant faith by following Yahweh into a strange and intimidating future, Ruth's action reminds us that courage and boldness and godly leadership these are important feminine attributes as well when it comes to living for God. When Boaz says to her, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz is saying that Ruth deserves Yahweh's reward and protection. Protection like a mother bird shows her young when she covers them with her wings. But what he does not realize yet at this point of the story is that Yahweh is doing that and he is using and will continue to use Boaz to reward Ruth. It may seem cliche, but there is a lot of truth to that phrase that we are often the hands and feet of God. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are God's handiwork. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works for which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Verse 14 continues. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some leftover. After she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some of the stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. By welcoming Ruth to eat with them, Boaz is in effect making her a part of his entourage. She's not just a gleaner anymore. She is now a company employee entitled to workers' benefits. He then gives the harvesters instructions that not only make her job easier, but they set her up for success at his expense. Pull out some of the stocks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. It's like a parent who tells their children you can have all the loose change that you find in the couch cushions. And then when they go to bed, they stuff it with cash. My children love it when I do that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah, and like All of our jaws are hanging open. We're like, seriously? An (laughs) EFAF? You know, the modern day equivalent to gleaning would be like scouring the neighborhood for pop bottles and cans to recycle. You would barely make enough to survive. The EFAF of barley that Ruth takes home that day is around 30 pounds. To put that into context, The average male harvester brought home, their pay at that time was about one to two pounds of barley. She brought home 30 pounds. She collected the equivalent of at least half a month's wages in just one day. Verse 18, she carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she'd gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you clean today? Where did you work? Bless the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth took her mother-in-law, told her mother-in-law, about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, this man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him. Because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Now this section here shows how God continues to be sovereign in Ruth and Naomi's good fortune. Ruth returns home with all of this grain and the leftovers from lunch. And Naomi, she cannot believe this. Naomi is so overwhelmed by all of this food that it shakes her out of her depression. The bitterness for God has now been replaced with joy. And when she finds out that Ruth just so happened to glean in Boaz's field, she exclaims in verse 20, The Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Now, this last line can be a little confusing. It's certain when Naomi says, The Lord bless him, she obviously means, The Lord bless Boaz. But when she says, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, who does she mean? Is it Boaz who has not stopped showing kindness or the Lord? It's both. Remember providence, how God's providence and he uses all of the events of our lives and directs them towards his good purposes. And that is exactly what God does here. Yahweh orchestrated all of the coincidences and he used them to help Naomi and Ruth. He took all of the acts of faithfulness and loyalty and sacrifice first shown by Ruth and now being shown by Boaz to display God's kindness, his kindness for Naomi. And the cherry on top of it all, Naomi says, that man whose field you just so happen to work in today is our close relative, he's one of our guardian redeemers. The guardian or the kinsman redeemer, in Hebrew it's the word goel, is a role stated in Israelite family law which asserts that particular family members had certain duties towards their clan, towards the extended family. Primarily the guardian redeemer was responsible for repurchasing property that other clan members were forced to sell because of economic necessity. By restoring the land to its original owners, the guardian redeemer maintained the entire clan's inheritance. But the guardian redeemer was also responsible for redeeming relatives whose poverty drove them to sell themselves into slavery. The fact that Boaz is Naomi's family's guardian redeemer, this is not just a piece of, inf- of interesting information. This prepares us, to anticipate the possibility of more assistance from Boaz and consequently, more chesed from God. At the end of chapter 1, Naomi could only see how God's hand was against her. Oh, she believes that he is all-powerful. Yes, he is in control of everything, but that included all that she suffered, and it felt so unfair causing her to become bitter. And I can relate to that. I can relate to having feelings of unfairness towards God when I've experienced my own suffering. When I had cancer in my early 20s, I not only lost all of my hair thanks to chemotherapy, but I also lost my ability to care for my wife. That was stripped away. Uh, my workplace, their insurance company wouldn't want to take the risk of something happening to me, and so they took away my job, and I lost my ability to work. According to my doctor, uh, the chemo I have was going to take away all possibilities of me being able to have children, gone. And the radiation I would have, that would also raise my chances of a secondary cancer exponentially. During that time, I never doubted God was real or that he was in control. But like Naomi, I questioned his fairness. Like I went to Bible school God to become a pastor, to work for you. And now this? Why couldn't I keep the job I loved when so many other things are being taken away from me right now? Why do the treatments that hopefully cure me today have to curse my tomorrow? It all seemed so unfair. And I I knew the Bible had answers. Like I already had a theology degree at this time. So I knew that there there were adequate answers for hard questions like this. And still many of my well-intending Christian friends and family, they would like to point out these answers to me. They were uncomfortable with the hard questions. But friends, just because the Bible has answers to our questions about suffering, it does not mean that those answers will always lead us to believe that God is fair or that he is good or kind. It wasn't scripture verses or theological answers to Naomi's hard questions like why did my husband and sons have to die that turned Naomi from accusing God of not being fair to now proclaiming that he has not stopped showing his kindness towards her. Rather, her turning point came when she no longer saw God as only responsible for her suffering but also responsible for all of the good fortune in her life. You see, Ruth's loyalty, the abundance of grain, the leftover food, and now a kinsman redeemer to boot, it's Naomi's lucky day. And she knows that luck has nothing to do with this. Naomi, she understands God's providence in her suffering, but also in her good fortune. She is our professor of providence, and we are her students. Yahweh has not abandoned her. His hand is not against her. She may not know why all of these terrible things have happened to her, but now in verse 20, we've got a renewed Naomi on our hands because she realizes God has not stopped showing his kindness to her, and he will not. And the truth is, we all have hard questions. We all have endured suffering that tempt us to accuse God of not being fair. But I seriously doubt that even if we had all of those questions answered, that that would be sufficient enough to stifle all our accusations of fairness. You see, the turning point comes for us, like it did for Naomi, when we no longer see God as only responsible for our suffering, but we also see God as ultimately responsible For all of our good fortune, too. The Bible says that whatever success, wealth, status, or skills you and I have, they did not come from us. It belongs to God because it all comes from His generous hand. There are no self made men or women. When we recognize that God's hand in all of the blessings that we have in this life, gratitude grows within us. And it is gratitude for God's goodness that is our remedy for doubting his fairness. It is gratitude for God's goodness that is our remedy for doubting his fairness. When it's revealed that Ruth worked in Boaz's field, Naomi is overjoyed because Boaz is the guardian redeemer. He is the one who can restore their good fortune. He is the one who can rescue them. And you and I, we also have a guardian redeemer. In Jesus, we have one who has rescued us from slavery, a savior who at great personal cost to himself has rescued us and restored our inheritance. Whenever you and I are tempted to accuse God of not being fair, when we feel like the hand of God is against us or someone we love, this is when we need to remember the cross. This is when we need to remember the cross and what Jesus did for us And to think about all of the ways that God has blessed us, all of the good things that we have experienced in this life. To think about our family and our friends and even our possessions. None of these came to us by luck and we didn't just earn them. God is sovereign in your good fortune and in mine too. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. When we recognize God's hand in our blessings, it grows gratitude within us. And gratitude for God's goodness is the remedy for doubting his fairness. Yeah, so on June 8, 2021... Jane Markovsky, known by her stage name, Nightbird, she performed on the show America's Got Talent, and she wowed the judges with her performance with her song, It's Okay. However, what captivated the audiences online and on social media wasn't Nightbird's skill as a performer, as much as it was her character and her resilience and her faith. She battled cancer. The first time, In 2017, doctors said she likely had less than six months to live, but in 2018, she was declared cancer-free. However, a few months later, the cancer made a return, and then to add to her suffering, her husband at this time also left her, so this time she would have to face the battle alone. In 2020, she was once again declared to be in remission. However, when she appeared on America's Got Talent in 2021, she revealed during her performance that this time, the, the cancer had returned again, this time, in her liver and in her spine and in her lungs. So how is it that Nightberg could walk out onto stage in front of an audience, in, in the audience of hundreds in the studio and millions on TV and online knowing that her very life was being threatened, and sing a song, It's Okay. It's because she not only saw God's sovereignty in her suffering, but Jane also saw him as sovereign in her good fortune. And she made a practice of looking and finding God's goodness all around her. She wrote in a blog, I haven't come as far as I'd like, In understanding the things that have happened this year. But here's one thing I do know. When it comes to pain, God isn't often in the business of taking it away, instead, He adds to it. He is more of a giver than a taker. He doesn't take away my darkness, He adds light. He doesn't spare me of thirst, He brings water. He doesn't cure me of my loneliness, He comes near. So why do we believe that when we are in pain, it must mean God is far? She goes on to say in another post, I remind myself that I am praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning, he sent them mercy bread from heaven, I look for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promised to bake fresh for me each morning. The Israelites, they called it manna, which means, what is it? That's the same question I'm asking again and again. There's mercy here somewhere. But what is it? What is it? What is it? it? Jane died in February 2022. But like Ruth and Naomi, she has left us with an incredible example of faith that perseveres despite suffering, trusting that God is sovereign in her suffering, but also in her good. The book of Ruth invites you and I to ask our tough questions of God, to struggle and wrestle with what the Bible says. But be warned, friends, answer to those questions may not satiate your appetite for what we think is fair. For that, I would encourage all of us to take a page out of Nightbird's book and look hard for the answers to the prayers that we didn't pray. See, we too need to make a practice of looking for and finding God's goodness all around us. And then upon discovering it, we need to show gratitude, remembering that gratitude for God's goodness is the remedy for doubting his fairness. See, God is sovereign in our good fortune. There is mercy here somewhere. There's hased, But what is it? what is it? What is it? I want to invite the worship team to come on up. Would you stand with me and pray? Father in heaven, I'm so grateful for the book of Ruth and for the models of faith we are seeing in Ruth and Naomi and Boaz now. And thank you for living examples of faith men and women with incredible faith even in our lifetimes thank you for jane nightbird who leaves us an example of someone who perseveres and looks for your goodness despite suffering hardship i pray for each of us as we go from here this morning i don't know where what we return to from this place for some of us we are suffering as well And God, I pray that you would walk alongside us and help us to continue to trust you and help us to walk alongside of each other so we don't have to face this suffering alone, that we have you and the family of Christ. But I pray you would also open our eyes to see all the ways that you are blessing us. God, would you give us an awareness of your mercy and your love and your loyalty to us in our lives today? And may we respond with grateful hearts. We love you and we thank you that you loved us first. In Christ's name we pray, amen.